You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. Easter Sunday. So if you're if you're new um, to the faith, it's um, it's a pretty significant Sunday. Um, that's an understatement um, in in the Christian faith. But traditionally, um, this is the weekend in which we celebrate the fact that Jesus, um, the, the the Son of God, um, was risen from the dead. That he was crucified on Friday and that he rose again three days later, um, rising really in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And so um, this is the central tenet of the Christian faith, um, that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, perfect in every way, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died, and rose in victory. The resurrection is ultimately what everything hinges on, because if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then you don't need to worry about anything that he said. And so the issue that we have to tackle this morning is not necessarily um, whether or not we like his teaching. There's a lot of people that don't believe Jesus rose from the dead that like Jesus' teaching. He has a lot of fairly decent things to say if you pick and choose, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, Defend the cause of the fatherless, the orphan, the widow. Care for the poor. Those are all virtuous things that probably most of us, whether we're believers or not, would mentally assent to. And yet, the central tenet of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus because that is where his authority proceeds from. That's where he can give us commands like care for the weak, care for the oppressed, the fatherless, the hopeless. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. All of that proceeds from the authority that was established in his resurrection. And so here's the thing. At Sojourn, we believe the resurrection to be true, and thus that Jesus' words, all of them, are authoritative. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul, in Corinthians, puts it this way. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. See, the, the risen Christ is the crux, the center of this faith, of following Jesus. And so today we're going to continue in the book of Romans. If you've been here before, you know that since January we've been in the book of Romans, um, and we're only in chapter 10, so that tells you kind of the rate that we move at. Um, But we'll be in chapter 10, and the sermon is titled, The Gospel of Christ. And so uh, if you've ever sort of heard me before, I try to break things down into three points for the sake of clarity and brevity. So I'm not the guy that's going to keep you here until tomorrow. Um, But uh, the first point, if you're taking notes, is is called One God. We're going to look at this idea of one God where he references actually um, in verse um, uh, verse 11 that he is the Lord of all. Um, And then we're going to talk about um, this idea that we are one people um, because of that, um, and that there is one purpose for this people. So um, we're going to spend the lion's share of that time talking about this idea of, of one God. And so um, before we get started, let me say this, okay? Sojourn is a place where two things can and should happen, okay? Can and should happen. We can and should question our faith, and we can and should question our doubts, This morning, whether you would consider yourself a follower of Christ or not, my hope is that you would determine good reasons for believing or not believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing, if he really did defeat death, then it changes everything. 
But if we doubt well, if we ask questions well, then we can walk away from skepticism, cynicism, or blind faith into a perceptive belief, an intellectual security, and a deeper commitment. And so to begin this morning, I'd like to take just a few moments of our time to give you just one simple reason why I believe that the resurrection is a true, factual, historical event. And this will tie into the text uh, a little bit later. So if this seems like just a tirade or a rant, it's not meant that way. Um, it is coming to a conclusion. And so, um, but here's, here's what I want to do. And so this is sort of completely separate from the Bible. This is just observing um, historical record and, and understanding historical culture and making an assessment based on that. Okay, so I'm, I'm completely removing the Bible from the equation just for this portion. First, before, before we start... We must recognize the predisposition that our culture has towards the supernatural, okay? So first, we have to understand ourselves. We have to understand the angle that we are going to look at something through, right? The lenses through which we see life. And if we're honest, our culture is one that, that is not quick to affirm the supernatural. There's other cultures that are. You go to China, you go to Asia, you go to Africa. Lots of people that are, are more willing or more open to the idea of the supernatural. But we stand in a time and a place where sort of science, reason, logic, are all valued. So just know that I'm starting my argument this morning in the negative. I recognize that, right? I, I, I'm not in a positive stance with you. I'm not even in a neutral stance. I'm probably, if you're a doubter, we're in a, we're in a negative spot, and that's okay. But let's recognize that that is sort of the, the predisposed posture of our culture towards the idea of the supernatural. Let's understand that first, okay? So what I mean by that is that our culture's baseline belief is not very flexible when it comes to the supernatural. It means that with this argument, um, it's going to be something that tugs against the way your rational mind maybe perceives things. But here's one of the reasons why I believe the resurrection to be true. There were two predominant cultures in the time of Christ, two predominant cultures, Jews and Greeks. And my argument is this, both Jewish and Greek cultures, like ours, were actually predisposed to reject the resurrection, meaning that they stood very much in the same posture as, as our culture does, in a posture that would initially say, that can't be true. Okay, It may be for different reasons, but that's the posture that they had. This, this resurrection cannot be true. And so I'm going to explain to you why, why that is. Um, because what happens, what we all know happens from historic record and really the reason that you even sit here today, men and women and children from both cultures rapidly and comprehensively changed their centuries-old worldview, not only to accommodate the resurrection, but to live and die for the testimony of Christ's resurrection. And so we have to come to grips with that. We have to ask ourselves, you have two cultures predisposed to not believe in the resurrection, they stood in a skeptical place, just like you and I, and yet men and women were changed in such a way that really, I mean, Christianity, a phenomenon that exists now 2,000 years later, there's not a ton of those. There's not a ton of things that we learned 2,000 years ago that is still happening. Okay, so we have to contend with that. Now, let me just explain a little bit um, from, from the point of view of, of, of both of those people. Okay, so, so the Greeks. In general, the Greeks were very open to the supernatural. Greek philosophy evolved over time from uh, the beliefs of Homer in gods like Zeus uh, to, to the Platonic belief in philosophy, like the forms, right? So there's a great evolution of culture in Greek history. We've, we've probably all studied that to some degree. But the Greeks always believed that there were forces greater than nature at work in the world. However, 
their views of what happened at death varied. Okay, so they had a way of seeing, of processing the things of the world, but their views of what happened after it varied. And here's what I mean by that. Some Greeks, like Homer, believe that man becomes a disembodied, witless spirit afterwards. So we just kind of float off into the sky like an amoeba and just have no brain, no interaction. We just kind of float around for, for eternity, right? That's, that's Homer. So death, not really a welcome prospect, right? Like, I'm just going to float for, forever. Um, if, if you follow the teaching of the Epicureans, they believed that the soul was composed of particles that disintegrated upon death. So that's very much probably what a lot of us believe today if we're just kind of the, the rationalists. Like, we die, we go to the ground, and we decompose. And it's it. It's over, Right? There was no existence after death. If you uh, followed Platonic thought, death was welcomed with the hope of escaping the body, meaning Plato believed that um, at the end of life, we actually sort of arrive at some higher state where we can uh, spend more time, as if they didn't spend enough time, discussing sort of the philo- philosophical enlightenment of the day. Like that was his, his view of heaven. Let's sit around and talk. So <laughs> what you begin to notice is that for the Greeks, the notion of, of an embodied life after death, of a resurrection, was neither possible nor desirable, right? None of what they believed in sort of their grand sweeping schemes of thought affirmed this idea of the possibility or even the plausibility of a resurrection. So what about the Jews? Unlike the Greeks, the Jews believed in a great resurrection, at the end of history, though, when everyone would be reunited with their bodies and would stand before God for judgment, and in their case, for salvation, right? So the people of God would be vindicated. They believed that they were the people of God, the, the, the holy nation of Israel, the, the bought people. And at this point in the future, all things would be renewed, that bodies, cities, and all creation would be renewed. The end of history would actually bring about a new creation, So here's the thing. If you were to come to a Jew in the middle of history and tell them that Jesus was their Messiah raised from the dead, they would be confused by that statement. It wasn't the end of history. There was no new creation. The world was still broken and Rome still oppressed them. See, for Jews, it was unthinkable that the resurrection could occur in the middle of history apart from worldwide renewal. Even more unthinkable was the idea that an individual would be resurrected and not all humanity at once. So for the Jews and the Greeks of Paul's day, the resurrection is completely and totally implausible. All of them stand at odds by nature of their their sort of cultural baseline of thought. Here's the thing, though. In spite of centuries-old beliefs, conviction, and thought about the nature of death, the afterlife, philosophy, and religion, men and women from both of these cultures converted to Christianity not over centuries, right? So thought tends, a system of thought tends to develop over time. But this was overnight. This was instantaneous that these men and women converted to Christianity, and this happened even though they had nothing in worldly terms to gain. Nothing to gain. Family and friends would reject them. Others would scorn them. Rome would oppose them. Nero would burn them. Why? Why did they not only change their views overnight en masse, but also run the risk of social marginalization and personal sacrifice if Jesus did not rise from the dead? In my mind, in my mind, the only reasonable explanation for this sudden shift in Greek philosophy and Jewish theology is that the first Christians must 
have seen the risen Christ. They must have. Otherwise, it makes no rational, logical sense. And here's the thing. It's not an isolated event. It happens to both cultures, both peoples, and it spreads to the ends of the earth. That's why we celebrate in tandem with Christians in China and in Africa and in Europe and in uh, Australia and all over the corners of the world. There's got to be something to it, at least something. Just from an intellectual standpoint, there's got to be something. So, with all that said, let's dive into our text this morning. Um, Romans 10, verses 1 and 2 say this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, we need a little bit of context in order to understand what it is that Paul is saying here. So, Paul, just really the majority of the letter is written to try and help Jews understand that their salvation has come, and it's come in the form of Jesus. And so, if you don't know about Paul or who Paul is, he's just, he is a, he's a former Jew um, in, this, in this sense. Um, he was really one of the more highly respected, well-known, um, educated in, in, in Judaism to the extent that he was really far above and beyond just kind of your average Jewish thinker of the day. So he's brilliant, a brilliant man. And yet we've seen that that Paul's life has changed. It's taken a different course. He had, he had at one point persecuted Christians, and now he's working for the cause of Christ to the degree that if you read any of the New Testament, which are just the books written after Jesus, if you read any of those, um, it's more than likely that it's probably written by Paul. There's a few that are written by other guys. But, so this is Paul. He's a Jew of Jews. And so he says, look, I, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for the Jews is that they would recognize who their God is, and that their God is actually Jesus, that he's revealed himself in Jesus. Okay, so, so here's the problem, right? He, he describes the Jews as a, as a zealous people, right? He says they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God. So, so what's the problem, right? Because I think a lot of the culture of our day would probably say, you know what? As long as you're giving it your best shot, he sees that, and he's going to just kind of welcome you in. We heard that sort of a similar line of thought from a guy named Bloomberg, right? When I get to heaven, it's not even close. Look at all the things I've done. But here's the thing. The problem with the Jews is not, is not a matter of zeal or desire. They wanted to follow God to the degree that they did some really silly things. They wanted to follow God, but what does it say? They worshiped God, but not according to knowledge. They worship God, but it's a God of their own construction. They've missed the plot by missing Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And so here's here's the takeaway for us, for us to understand. If you're a believer in the room, we must always remember that it's the truth that changes us, not the other way around. Because I think one of the reasons that the message of Jesus and and sort of the understanding of really the the, the life-transforming power of what Jesus can and does do through the gospel is lost on us because we like to take the easy parts and we like to forget the harder parts. And this is why at Sojourn we hold closely to the Word of God because it is constant and unchanging. And we are fickle and changing all the time. 
And so we must worship God according to knowledge, according to how he has revealed himself. So here's the thing. Uh, This is going to sound very exclusive, right? That there's one God and that there's one way to God and that's through Jesus. But that's what the Bible tells us. And so in order to stay faithful to that, we can't try to wiggle out from that pressure, no matter how hot the opposition gets. And it's getting hotter. If you're not a believer in the room, here's, here's the thing. The Jews tried to pick and choose what they received from God. And, and the thing about God is that he, he's an all or nothing God. You can't have him as Lord and not Savior because if he's just your Lord, his perfect justice would, would demand your death. Like that was the initial problem. That's what Paul is trying to get the Jews to see. He's saying, look, you can't do this on your own. But we also can't just have him as Savior and not Lord. Because if he's saved you, if he's given you what you could not attain for yourself, then he demands it. you owe him your complete and total allegiance. Because he's given you freedom, life, joy, peace, hope. So here's the thing. It's easy to have misdirected zeal. Paul, what Paul is saying is that if our zeal isn't directed towards the truth, the knowledge of God that we've been given in Jesus, we're still lost. He's going to further explain. Romans 10, 3 and 4 say this. um, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And again, Paul has been hammering this point throughout the whole book of Romans. If you've ever read the book, this is basically what the entire book is about. It is impossible for sinful humans, whether you are a law keeper or a law breaker, it is impossible for sinful humans to establish their own righteousness. Right? That's what he says. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. This is really what the story of of the Bible is all about. A lot of times, uh, people like to pick and choose passages, maybe from the Old Testament, that are unsettling in terms of maybe someone behaving in a certain way against another person. You see a lot of like rape and adultery and all kinds of stuff that happens in in the Old Testament. And people say, well, is this what the Bible affirms? Absolutely not. The whole point, the whole reason that it's in there is to show us that we're hopeless and that we're helpless. Whether it's in the garden, whether it's at Babel, whether it's in our current humanism or our recent sort of penchant for activism and social justice, we are always striving to obtain for ourselves a justification, a reason, a purpose, a righteousness, something for which we obtain value. What the Bible is telling us here is that Christ, that God has given us a righteousness that is sufficient, that Christ is our righteousness and the only righteousness that can truly be considered righteous. Every other kind of righteousness is self-defined and ultimately self-tainted. The only righteousness that will stand in the court of God is that righteousness which has been bestowed upon us freely in Jesus. So here's the thing. If you're, if you're a believer in the room, you, you need to ask yourself one question. Are you passively believing in Jesus while actively pursuing your own righteousness? In my mind, this is the biggest problem in the church today. The biggest problem, not only for us as believers, as we relate to one another, but the biggest problem for us in culture is that people look at us and you tell me, you tell me that I can be saved and that it's free grace and that there's nothing I have to do but you expect from me to behave the way that you do. 
You expect me to live up to a certain moral standard. You hold me accountable to all of these things that really I don't affirm. See, in all of our, of our actions, if we, if we proclaim by our actions something other than the gospel, we're only giving people another form of morality. So here's the thing. If we are passively believing in Jesus while actively pursuing our own righteous, we are in folly. We have been freed from this impossible pursuit. That's the glory, the good news of the gospel is that where the law failed, Christ has been victorious. In the words of Andrew Murray, he says this, a dead Christ we must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for us. And so if you're a believer in the, in the room this morning, I want you to rest in grace and rejoice that you have been given a work that is not futile. You've been given a work that is not futile. Your good works are a gracious gift. They're part of the righteousness that Christ placed on your back freely and without cost. So here's the thing. When we do good things, we don't get to walk around to people and say, look at the good I've done, as if you were going to justify yourself. You get to do those good works and you get to praise God in heaven that he has given you the opportunity, the ability to even come alongside anything that is good. It's a gift. It's all a gift. And so this idea of the arrogant or prideful Christian is, is a paradox. Like those two things can't exist together. You can't believe that God has given you everything that you couldn't earn in Christ Jesus and then hold that over someone else's head. It just doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. If you're not a believer, even if you don't believe in Jesus and this, this good news that he brings that says, although you could do nothing, he has done everything. Even if you don't believe in that, I think if you're, if you're intellectually honest with yourself, if you really consider sort of your feeling and what your daily pursuit in life looks like, I think, I could be wrong, and you're welcome, you're welcome to tell me that. That's okay. I'm a big boy. I'd like to believe, or I really think that some part of you would like to believe that this is true. Because every, everything else in this world is telling you that if you don't do X, Y, Z, then you don't matter. That's really what it is. I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't matter what your, kind of, your, what your goals are, your pursuits are. All of those things demand you to act and behave in a certain way. And you're a slave to that. If it's success if it's money, if it's a certain house that you have to have, a certain kind of spouse that you have to be married to, if it's a, a certain status within sort of your, your culture or your family that you have to have, you're going to work and you're going to strive to obtain those things. That's the American dream, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got nobody else to blame but yourself. And that's why when we see the homeless person walking on the side of the street, we say, look at that. He's just a drag on society does nothing, lends nothing, gives nothing. The gospel says, we're all the homeless guy. We all have nothing. We all can give nothing. We're all worth nothing. 
But God in Jesus has counted us something. Not worthless, but worthy. By his grace. By his sheer grace. And so this is why this is good news to us. If you're wondering why Christians get together and celebrate and raise their hands and clap and sing, it's because we've been released from sort of the hamster wheel that is the pursuits of this life. Because all of those things that I just mentioned, whether it's money or houses or cars or people or status or whatever, every single one of those things disappears. But in Christ, we have a hope that does not put us to shame. So here's the thing. All of us, all of us, whether we're believers or not, have sort of an, an identity or something that we strive for, strive after, whether that's in your career or whatever it might be. But if we're honest... All of us have fallen short of that identity at some point. Like all of us have done something at some point that I'm not even talking about sort of you, the you and God relationship, the vertical relationship. I'm talking about your relationship with yourself, that you've done something. You've said, man, like that wasn't good. That's not the kind of person I am. I think all of us have found ourselves in that situation, right? I think so. I certainly have. So... If you have failed to live up to your own standard and your own perceived good identity, would it not be good news to you that your failed identity and that your failed standard was replaced with Jesus' perfect identity and his perfect standard at zero cost to you? I'd imagine that, that, that's, that that's good news. So, what is this good news? What is this proclamation that supposedly saves us? Romans 10, 5 through 11, read like this. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So he's saying Moses brought this, this morality. He showed us the nature and character of God. The person that wants to do the commandments will live by them. But Paul is going to contrast that with this faith. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So this is why we proclaim the truth. This is why we sing songs and we shout aloud that he is risen. In this proclamation is salvation. If we believe Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead to conquer our sin and death, we recognize that our righteousness is actually his and that he's given it to us. And this is why Paul boldly says in Romans chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation to all who would believe. Everyone who believes in this hope will not be put to shame. So here's the thing. We all hope in something. We all hope in something, either to obtain it or to hold on to it. You get something that is precious to you, you hope to hold on to it. But your hope in that thing will be put to shame because whether you think about it from the, a, a theological perspective in the sense that, um, that those things will be removed from you by your death or whether you think about it purely in a scientific way in that there's a law of thermodynamics that says everything will break down. That, that everything on earth is in a, a constant state of decay. Those, all of those things, all of that hope, 
all of those other things that you could possibly put your hope in, they will put you to shame. They will put that hope to shame. Meaning that hope won't be realized or it won't last. But the hope that we've been given in the gospel is a hope of the glory of God, that we will experience him in eternity. The Bible tells us that it's a treasure that's been laid up for us in heaven, one that is imperishable, that cannot be taken away by thieves or robbers or anything. In fact, Romans 8, 31 through 39 tells us that neither height nor depth, right, neither width nor breadth, nothing in all of creation could separate us from this love, from the love of Christ. This glorious good news that although we are more sinful than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever dare hope is not without its, without its implications. And there's two that I'd briefly like to share because they're foundational to this church that you find yourself in. Romans 10, 12 and 13 say this. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is, this is where we, we start drawing on the argument that I first presented. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, what's crazy about all this is that that Jews and Greeks stand on complete opposite sides of the aisle. Think Republican, Democrat times a thousand. Okay? In every single way, racially, ethnically, socially, economically, they are worlds apart, theologically, philosophically, worlds apart, totally disparate, different people. Stand, they, they're, they're firm in their identity. They know who they are. They're proud to be Greek. They're proud to be Jewish. The Jews think they're the people of God. The Greeks think they're the most enlightened civilization in the world. They are at complete odds with one another. And what does Paul say? There's no distinction. There's no distinction. The gospel binds together the disparate peoples of the world. The gospel brings people of every tribe, tongue, and nation under the kingship of Christ. It's why this room is filled with people from a wide variety of backgrounds. You see, Jesus didn't just come for the white, upper-middle-class, Republican, big Bible-carrying, two-kids-in-a-minivan family. He came for all peoples, and he binds all manner of people together. And this is why we place such an emphasis on community here at Sojourn. We ultimately believe that God has not only saved us from something, but he saved us into a new family. That as Romans 8 says, we've received a spirit of adoption, that we are brothers and sisters in the faith. The second implication and the final one for today uh, of this glorious good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is found um, in Romans 10, 14, and 15. And it says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People that have experienced something wonderful in life like to tell, uh, tell people about it. We tell people about the chicken and waffles at Lola. That's my favorite, personal. The old, the old fashioned at Poison Girl, another favorite. The piccata at Pauly's, the new Wes Anderson film. 
right? We like to tell people about the good things that we enjoy. It's our nature. We celebrate that great workout. We celebrate that great CrossFit gym. We celebrate this great job that we have or whatever, this great relationship that we have. We tell people what we enjoy. It therefore logically follows that this good news should be on the tips of our tongues every year, every week, every day, every waking moment because we've been brought from death to life. So here's the thing. If you're in the room and you're wondering, one, why, why does this place, these people talk so much about Jesus? That's why. But let me also just acknowledge something that might be confusing for you if you're not a believer. Why is it that you don't hear this as much as you should? You see, the, the problem is, is that over time, Christians have confused their morality with their message. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ does tell us that there, there is some life change involved. That when Jesus changes your, your heart, that, that, that things change. That we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans is going to tackle that in a little bit for us. So yeah, like it does cause us to do things differently, but not for a salvation, from a salvation. Everything that has been given to us in Jesus is secure, finally and fully in Jesus. That's the message. That's the good news. And far too often, we are giving people morality and not good news. Far too often, we're giving good advice and not good news. This is good news. And we're going to see that truth in our baptism today. We'll see this truth that God uses his people to proclaim the good news, right? Like, that's what Paul is saying. He's, he's sort of giving us a backwards-talking, sort of logical argument. He says, how are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed, right? Because that's what he says in verse 12. He says, everyone, or sorry, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul's like, okay, how are we going to arrive at that place where people call on the name of Christ in order that they might be saved? How are we going to get there? Well, how are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe if they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so make no mistake, the people of Christ are that sent people preaching that good news. So preach the good news. Don't give good advice. Give gospel. This is the good news that we have been given to share. And so let me make one final distinction, I think, that's very important for us to understand as Christians in really a nation now that is a strange political climate for those of us who, who believe in Jesus. Jesus does command his, his people to make disciples, right? We see that Jesus is risen from the dead. He spends some time talking to people, revealing himself to people, right, in order to, to, to send them out. And finally... Right before he's about to ascend into heaven, he says, he says these words. He says, all authority on heaven, or in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Okay? All authority is mine. And then he says, therefore. So because of that, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you 
to the end of the age. That's what he tells them to do. But let us understand this. When Jesus commands his people to make disciples by teaching them about him, he's not calling them to Christianize nation states. Okay? He's not calling them to Christianize nation states, but to share the good news of what Jesus has done with all ethnic groups. See, a lot of us tend to think that, or at least this is what it looks like in our political climate, that somehow we've been called to to sort of draw the country back to this sort of Christian political system. And while the gospel of Jesus Christ does have implications for our personal politics, that is not what he came to do. Christ does not advocate Christendom, a top-down political Christianity. Instead, he calls his followers to transmit a bottom-up indigenous Christianity to all peoples in all cultures. That's what we've been called into. To love your neighbor as yourself. And that through you loving God, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and through you loving them, and through you preaching the gospel to them in word and in deed, that people will come to know Christ. That's, that's really ultimately the promise. Paul's being speculative here in terms of, hey, how's this going to happen, right? He's asking a lot of questions. But he's, he's saying this in faith. He's saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news because people are sent The body of Christ is sent, and it is sent to preach. And if they're preaching, that means that people will hear. And if people hear, that means they're going to believe. And if people believe, that means they're going to be called into his kingdom. That is the good news. Christians, we have to stop majoring on the minors. Let's major on the major. And that is that although we could do nothing, Christ has done everything for us by his sheer grace as a gift, not of works, so that none can boast. And we are his workmanship now created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Everything is from Christ, everything is through Christ, and everything is for Christ. This is why at Sojourn we live life together as one people for one God with one purpose which is to share the good news about Jesus Christ. We truly are all about Jesus. So here's the thing. As we move to our conclusion, if you're still doubting, if you still have questions, despair not. Like I said, this is a place for you to be able to do that. And I also want to encourage you with this verse. In in Romans 10, 21, it says this. But of Israel, he says. And so what's in quotes here um, is is God speaking, okay? But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Oftentimes, we look at God as sort of a a despot, um, just kind of authoritarian, just demands your allegiance. But in this, we see that God is patient, He's been patient with his people that for centuries his people have disobeyed him and yet he says what? All day long I have held out my hands. God is patient. He won't tarry forever, but while you draw breath there is yet time. God is holding out his hands to you even in your disbelief and your rejection of all that he came to do for you. Here's the thing. I stood in that place. 
I've sat in the seat of the skeptic. I've been there. And the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That even in our direct opposition, that he still extends his hand to you. He still says, there is yet time. He still says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, in closing, this is what I want to do. If you're a believer in the, in the room, be encouraged by the fact that he has taken your hand. That he has taken your hand. Rejoice this morning in the good news that what was dead is now alive. That what was stone is now flesh. That what was darkness is now light because of Jesus. That he died to bear your sin and death and that he rose to conquer it. He is your Lord and your Savior and he has drawn you to his people for his purposes. Share this news. This news. And if you're not a believer in the room, we as a body, we plead with you to trust him today. We plead with you not to convert you to our way of thinking or simply to a morality or a worldview. We plead with you so that you might find salvation and life, life abundant in Jesus. We plead with you so that you might experience the joy and the exuberance and the security that we find in the resurrection for real on this day. We plead with you so that in joy of the proclamation that he is risen, you might respond in faith and in confidence that he is risen indeed. This is what we celebrate this morning. Let's pray.